Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get to the show. There are strategies to build wealth, and then there are strategies to supercharge the wealth building process. Jim McGovern is here with his guest, Neil Brinsfield, on Maximizing Outcomes, and they're going to talk about systematic ways to improve your cash flow and the amount of income you can save. Neil, that sounds pretty fancy, you know, but I'm going to let you bring it on down to earth. I'm Patrice Sikora, and Jim, how are you? I'm doing great, Patrice. we got a great show lined up for today. And before I bring Neil on the show here and I introduce him, uh, before I forget, I want everybody to take a look at the show notes because there are two important links that we have in the notes for you. The first one is there's a two-minute video that's going to highlight all the concepts that Neil and I are going to talk about today. And I think it's a great way to put some visualizations behind everything that we're going to be describing. Also, if you want a summary of your overall financial health, there is a link to a complimentary tool that will guide you through four super quick, super easy steps. And at the end, it'll produce a scorecard so you can see where your finances are already and if they're optimal or not. And it's going to point out some areas that you can make some improvements. It's confidential, it's secure. And if you see some areas of improvement and you'd like to have a discussion with myself or one of our team members, uh, there's a way to request for us to reach out to you uh, straight from the tool. So let me introduce you to Neil Brinsfield. He is a wealth management advisor and managing partner of Consolidated Planning in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And he's also a special consultant to the Living Balance Sheet. So the majority of clients that are listening in are already regular users of the Living Balance Sheet app, and you benefit from its vast array of tools, the comprehensive client process, and the unique philosophy that Living Balance Sheet creates. When Neil isn't working directly with his own clients, in his consulting role, he spearheads an initiative that focuses on addressing the most significant challenges that our clients encounter. And in this capacity, he is collaborating with leading experts in our field as well as a highly skilled team of programmers. And together, they harness their collective expertise to develop solutions that are not only more effective, but they're also far more intuitive for clients to understand so they can make more informed decisions. So with that, Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. I'm excited to have you on here today because we're going to be addressing one of the biggest challenges that people of all different incomes, ages, and net worth levels struggle with. And that is cash flow management. And when you think about it, I mean, balancing our cash flows that we use for living life in the moment while also trying to do what it takes to save and invest and build wealth in the future is no easy task. And it's something that I think a lot of folks are struggling with. So why don't we just kick it off, Neil, by just talking about how big of a challenge cash flow management is and what some of the trends that we've been seeing with cash flow in this country? It's, uh, you know, in terms of the scale, it is a massive challenge. It's probably the single greatest financial challenge that the average American faces. But what's especially difficult about it is that the average person doesn't necessarily realize how damaging it can be to not manage their cash flow well over time. There's a lot of ways that we we look at this and sort of assess someone's financial health as it relates to their cash flow. Probably the the most common, the easiest to access is just to think about your savings rate and what percentage of 
your income? Are you putting somewhere on your balance sheet, savings, 401k, investments, uh, and you name it. And unfortunately, the average American right now is saving over the last year or so, somewhere between three and 5% of their income. And that might that, that might not seem like that big of a deal. Like at least we're saving something. It's a positive savings rate. The The issue is that at that savings rate, even with incredible rates of return for the money that they're putting away, most people never have a chance, uh, a hope even, of being able to save enough money to create enough wealth on their balance sheet to one day be able to retire and have that net worth be able to passively create cash flow uh, back to them that's going to support their lifestyle, much less do all the other things that people would love to do and during their life, like send their kids to college or buy a new house. So the the other reason it's a real crisis is that people don't appreciate uh, the problem for years and years, in some cases, decades, because it's so easy to just live in the present, live off of your cash flow and not think about or even fully appreciate and understand you know, the problem uh, that's waiting for you down the road. And Neil, is this something that's new? Or is this something that's been you know, people have been struggling with for many years now? Yeah, so this is a great question. It's not new, and it, it's both not new and we haven't always struggled with it. So we could look back if our savings rate today is is uh, you know between three and five percent. We could look back to a prior era because the Federal Reserve tracks this on a monthly basis, and they have going all the way back to the 1950s. You know, during the 1970s, people tended to save closer to you know. 14, 15% of their income. And you know what's interesting about that is keep in mind, you had a lot more single income households back then. People still saved more. You know, workers had access to a private pension that they don't have anymore, and yet they still save more. So the the net effect of how little people save today versus how much we saved in the past uh, is in some ways even worse than it sounds. The other thing, though, that we see that I think is really useful for anybody that's listening is as we go back over that history of kind of the savings trends, is that there's these moments that have occurred over the last 50 or 60 years that we've got data for where the savings rate jumps uh, for a period of time. And those moments are almost always correlated to recessions. In other words, when times get really tough economically, uh, when people sort of uh, get scared straight, they wake up to the reality of you know what's going on in their balance sheet and what's going on just in general with their finances, they tend to start to save more. And so savings rates jump up during recessions. Almost every single recession since the 1950s, that's been true. No moment has been more clear, though, than what happened with COVID, where everybody in the world woke up all at once to what was going on. It was incredibly scary. We didn't know what the future was going to hold. The savings rate prior to COVID was around six, seven percent, and at its height uh, during kind of the darkest days of the shutdowns early on, when a lot of people were not sure what was going to happen, that savings rate went up north of thirty percent. Wow! And so, yeah, wow, exactly. And then that's got to be like like an all time high since they've been tracking it. it all time high by a hundred percent. Yeah, it's like massive high. It just speaks to probably how big of a deal, obviously, that was for everyone, but also. What it shows is what people are capable of doing, what people have the intention of doing, but in so many cases fail to do consistently. And we can be we we can be temporarily, I think, cajoled into saving more. History has shown that, but most people just don't. They don't do it consistently, and they fall back into the old habits once uh, things settle down. I also think that one of the things with with savings rates is that you know sometimes it's hard to see 
the results immediately. You know what I mean? I think a lot of us want instant gratification. I almost think about, like you mentioned, how reactive savings rates are. It's kind of like the way people feel when they're going on vacation. Suddenly, the week before they go to the beach, they want to start losing weight, right? And it's like, well, <laughs> it's a process. It takes a little bit longer yeah. than just like the week before. And I think when people are, are facing these these scary times, they're like we, we need to start saving money because now it feels immediate and it feels real. So Neil, like what what would be a, a more optimal rate of savings? Like what percentage of somebody's income should they be saving for the future, and and why? Yeah. So Jim, I love this question because uh, it speaks to one of the really like sneaky problems related to managing cash flow. As I said earlier, if the savings rates between three and five percent on average, you'd think that's going to produce an average result for somebody's retirement. But in reality, it produces failure. And if you save only three to five percent, even if you get astronomical rates of return, you're just not going to have enough money to be able to retire. So in looking at thousands and thousands of case studies of of savings rates and various rates of return, what we've been able to kind of conclude is that that optimal savings rate tends to be many multiples of the average. Uh, like at a minimum, people really have to be saving 15 to 20% or more on average over the course of their career uh, to really have a shot, like a reasonable shot at having enough money uh, build up on the balance sheet to be able to recreate their lifestyle in retirement. Well, you know what's funny about that number is I'm just thinking back to what you said earlier. Like, if you go back to historical savings rates, like you mentioned, they've been they've been tracking this stuff since 1950s, 1960s. Uh, what were the savings rates again back then? If we go back prior to 1980, you're going to consistently see the savings rate always be in double digits, never falling below 10, really as high as 15 to 16 percent. Yeah, and what's interesting about that is you don't. You don't hear many stories of people that were from the uh, you know, the World War II generation, what they nicknamed the greatest generation. You didn't hear about that segment of the population failing in retirement. They didn't they didn't run out of money. I mean, it's like almost virtually unheard of. And I think it's two reasons. One is you mentioned that they had pension plans, but number two, that generation was great at saving money. But we can't say the same about the baby boom generation. I mean, it's it's pretty much a, a daily. Store, news story in almost any popular financial press, you'll see stories of people that are either running out of money in retirement or they're terrified they're going to do so. And it's because they didn't save enough money. So in terms of, of boosting cash flows and becoming a, a much better saver, what are some of the misperceptions about cash flow management? Because I think, I think a lot of the advice that people have been given over the years, it's kind of the same old tired advice. It's kind of like dieting in the fitness world. Like, well, if you want to be more physically fit, you just go on a better diet. It just doesn't seem to work for people. Like, what are some of those recommendations that people have been hearing over the years that has kind of left them short in terms of what they're capable of? You know, what I would say, what's different about uh, the environment today versus like the greatest generation, as you mentioned, I don't think that people have really evolved to be different. I don't think that our DNA is different today versus way back when. What is definitely true today is that it's a lot easier to spend money today than it used to be. Uh, the spending has been uh, automated. It is something that happens imperceptibly. Auto draft, you know, of various subscription fees and other types of costs, one-click ordering on Amazon. It's really, really easy to spend money today. And that's part of what's putting pressure on people's ability to save. And so one of the misperceptions is that this is a willpower issue. If you just uh, dedicate yourself to doing it, it'll be easy. And I think that's just not the case. Like everybody wants to save, everybody has the intention of saving. Uh, but most people are set up to fail because of a lack of understanding or like what's really happening with their cash flow and maybe a lack of understanding uh, of human nature. And Jim, I, I love the dieting 
example because it it speaks to the way most people misperceive you know where they ought to put their time and energy uh fad diets are a lot like fad savings uh, that that intention of hey, we're going to really buckle down. We're going to really work hard on eating the right foods, just like we're going to work really hard on saving enough money. We're focusing on the wrong thing. Uh, first of all, it goes against human nature because human nature is to consume. You know, we just we have resources, we have food in the pantry. It's really, really hard to not uh, consume at all, whether it's money or whether it's it's food. And a lot of the focus in, in those dieting examples is around things like bioorganic food, low carb, low fat, gluten-free, and so on. And there's probably not enough focus on just eating less food. So the same thing happens financially where it's so much of the uh, the marketing, so much of the advice, it's around the wrong thing. It's around things like rate of return and asset allocation and buying uh, cryptocurrency and all sorts of uh, strategies that are designed to increase your, your returns. But what is being left out of that, what's so obvious and has to come before is this reality that it's not about choosing the right vehicles. It's really about spending less so that you can save more at the end of the day. And I guess from a, from a budgeting standpoint, it's like nobody wants to be on a strict diet. It's just you know, it's like saying no to all the all the favorite foods in your life, and it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna say no to this forever. I think it sets us up for failure many times, and I think a lot of times when it comes to budgeting, people feel like they're on a financial diet. Like all the things that I like doing with my time and with my money, I have to say no to, and that's just not realistic. I mean, you you can do that for a little while, but eventually, you kind of throw your hands up with frustration, and say, "Forget it, I'll figure this out later." So I, I think when it comes to budgeting, I think I think having a mechanism to be on budget without ever being on a budget is important, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But what about this this myth, Neil, that as I make more money, it'll be easier to save more? How how accurate is that assumption? You know, I think it's true that you you have more money to save, but the whole idea of I'll be able to save more when I make more money, I'll save more tomorrow. You know, it's we'll, we'll put this off to the future. It, it's really not a goal for the future. It's like a habit today. And the habit is procrastination where you're, you're sort of engineering into your plan that your financial woes are going to be solved in the future. And that future never arrives because we're always waiting for it. It's uh, just like the dieting example. We've got to begin now. The good news is I think that it's a lot easier to create you know a structure where uh, you can effectively save well when it comes to your money it's way easier I think than uh than you know counting calories or focusing on the right food those things that are so difficult to achieve when it comes to our health they really can be set up and automated uh financially in such a way that it's it's effortless it's not something you have to even consciously be aware of day to day and you can be succeeding where that doesn't happen though is within the vehicle that most people tend to put almost all of their money into. It's really the most dangerous financial vehicle ever made. Uh, and that is maybe surprisingly, that is a checking account. When money goes into a checking account, it really goes there to die. You know, money goes into a checking account. It's really intended to be spent. And probably the biggest say, structural issue that people have, the mistake that we, we so easily make is having our income flow into a checking account that is, let's be clear, it's not a savings account, it's a spending account with the intention of I'll build up reserves there. Uh, I'm going to build a surplus. And then like Jim, you you mentioned, I'll, I'll wait until such a time when it feels right. We'll go move that somewhere else. We'll move it to investments. We'll put it into a Roth IRA and start to build wealth for the future. That it, it, it never happens because lifestyle 
your cost of living will always grow to you know, consume all of that available uh, money. The analogy we'll often use is, is think like electricity. Your income is like a power source. It's like a generator of electricity. Uh, if you know, if money is power in our example here, most people are plugging a really, really like hungry power draining appliance called their lifestyle directly into the income source. And day in and day out, it's just consuming power and it's getting less and less efficient over time. As your, your cost of living increases, it just drains more of that power. And most people's cost of living increases by default. And it does it in such a way that it's actually imperceptible. You don't notice it in the moment. You can really only tell when you look back over a long period of time that it's even happened. I think the other interesting point about this is like, like you mentioned like this dangerous vehicle where money goes to die, the checking account. Yeah. Once it hits that account, it's spent, but it's also, Neil, I've noticed this. I'm sure you have as well that, you know, when we meet somebody for the first time and we, we start to talk through how much money do you put away on an annual basis? A lot of people have a really hard time answering that question with any accuracy because everything they're spending money on is commingled in the same account that they're also trying to take money out of the save for the future. Maybe money that they're, they're giving to others. I mean, it's all, it's all mixed in this one account. And it's hard to put your finger on it, but I think people intend to pay themselves first, but by nature, they consume first and they pay themselves last. So why don't we talk about that a little bit? I mean, again, paying yourself first, I think is a good concept, like setting aside money as you earn it for wealth creation so that someday you don't have to work for money anymore uh, is, is huge. But I think very few people have a system that allows that to happen naturally. Let's talk about a way where people could truly pay themselves first and have a system that that helps to put that ability to, to save and, and create wealth for the future largely on autopilot. And I guess it gets us out of our own way. It's exactly what has to be done, Jim. So most people think of pay yourself first as you know money hits that checking account and then we make the conscious decision to shift it you know, to a savings vehicle, to an investment vehicle. And that's better than nothing for sure, but that's not really paying yourself first. Because again, money is still hitting that most dangerous place on your balance sheet, the checking account first. So rather than putting money into harm's way, optimal, although maybe counterintuitive, optimal tends to look more like this. Instead of having your paycheck direct deposited into the checking account, instead of plugging the lifestyle directly into that source of, of income, what would be better is to have that paycheck direct deposited first into a savings vehicle. There, all of that money can first go to savings. It can be gathered and aggregated there. And then you can very intentionally deploy it to both lifestyle on a very fixed basis where you're deciding exactly how much you're going to spend on an ongoing percentage. And then also to long-term wealth building. Think about it in these terms. Let's say I've got an income of you know $200,000 I'm going to deposit all of that first into my savings account. Uh, from there, we're going to have a dedicated, again, decided, not by default, but by decision outflow to go into the household checking account to fund lifestyle, to buy gas and groceries and pay for the cell phone bills and pay for uh, daycare and private school tuition and all these other costs of living. And so we might set that up and it's you know $10,000 a month, that's $12,000 a month to create this effectively, it's a counterintuitive way of looking at it, but it's like a budget for yourself to spend. And the, the great thing about it, the freeing thing about it is that you have permission to spend every penny of what goes into that checking account every month. We don't have to feel guilty about or feel like we're restraining ourselves 
and enjoying and spending that money, it's there to be spent. Everything that doesn't get pushed to the checking account is therefore also available to save. And so what that does is it just automates the process and it ensures that you're only going to spend what you intended to spend. You're not going to spend more than that. You're not going to dip into savings uh, by default. You're going to have to make the conscious decision to do that, to spend more than what you've allocated yourself. And that it's a subtle difference. It might not seem like a big deal, but that subtle difference for most people is really, truly the difference between uh, you know, mediocrity from a financial result perspective and wild success uh, in terms of really building wealth on the balance sheet. So let's talk about what these subtle differences can mean, because I know some people are listening in, they're going, okay, sounds like uh, not that much different than what I'm currently doing, or you know, does is, is it really make that big of a difference? But what are some of the, the immediate opportunities that are captured by organizing that way? I'm just thinking about the irregularity that we all have with, with cash flow to some extent, like when it comes to how often we're paid yeah. or what happens when we get a pay raise. How does this way of, of managing cash flow capture those opportunities? So it is it is uh, it's subtle, and it's uh, we use the word imperceptible a lot, uh, which is which is key because when we don't perceive something, we can't get in our own way. For a lot of folks that are listening to the way I just described that structure, paying yourself first and then having that dedicated outflow to checking, you you are probably thinking, well, math wise, that doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't feel like it's going to be that different today than what I'm already doing. And you're probably right, you know, in the immediate, like this month, if you made the change next month, after you've made the change, you're not going to see necessarily a big difference. The advantage comes over time. And it just, it doesn't come like in a linear fashion over time. It compounds, it, the, the advantage gets bigger and bigger over time because of what Jim just mentioned. Irregularity, in cash flow, sometimes we think of it as our enemy, but if we have this kind of a structure, that irregularity can be our friend. As you get a raise at work, as a bonus is earned that maybe wasn't expected or it's bigger than expected, a, a windfall occurs, you get a, a big tax refund, rich uncle passes away, and you get a little bit of an inheritance that you didn't expect. You know, all these are examples of irregular cash flows that when they come in the traditional format into the checking account, they tend to be spent you know, by design. When those irregularities occur with this pay yourself uh, sort of savings vehicle first format, what happens is that all those irregularities are automatically captured. They're automatically saved by default. You remember, if you've got a $10,000 a month sort of budget you've created for yourself, that's just systematically being pushed to the checking account, that's not going to increase just because you got a bigger bonus or because you got a pay raise. That amount has to be changed by decision. If your income over time is increasing at you know 4% and we can limit and not have that cost of living on average increase uh, at that same 4%, if we can constrain that, that subtle difference, uh, which we, we can get into the examples of kind of what the difference would be numbers-wise, but that really is the key over time uh, to making this work in your favor to the tune of lots and lots of money that just otherwise would not be there on your balance sheet without this type of structure in place. I think this is a huge point because I remember that the first time that I, I saw this and I know that uh, you know, we were modeling it out in the software that we used, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the living balance sheet. And I remember when this concept was first demonstrated to me, I'm going, okay, it looks like an extra step, big deal, right? And then we started to model it over time. And I was convinced there was an error in the software because the amount of money that somebody was able to save by just having this structure put in place, to me, was mind-boggling. And I, I say this literally every day in my office when I'm with my clients, that there's probably more money at stake than almost any other conversation we're ever going to have is this cash flow you know, organization and management piece. So Neil, yeah, if you, if you have an example of the power of 
being able to control the cash flows where you say, okay, maybe my my rate of pay is going up by 4%, but I don't increase my rate of spending by only 3%. What does that do in terms of real numbers over time to somebody's ability to save? We'll, we'll kind of talk through this. And again, I, what I would encourage you to do is just think about your own numbers, your own situation. And this this example I'm going to give, I think is fairly transferable and, and you, you can perhaps start to get a sense of what the impact could be. But take someone who is, or even not a someone, but a household. Take a household, uh, 35 years old, household income of $200,000, just to choose a round number. You know, If that income increases at just 4% a year between 35 and 65, what those folks will earn and just total gross earnings is a little over $11 million. And that, you know, we, we think about that this year, earnings potential, uh, but it's within that earnings potential that you're going to create net worth. And so all of the all of the financial goals you have can all be realized with the proper management of that money. All of your financial concerns, your woes can be remedied with the proper management of that amount of money. So to Jim's example, you know, what if we're not taking full advantage of that income, that $200,000 a year that's increasing? And we're only saving like $5,000 of the 200,000. That's a, unfortunately, over the last couple of years, that's pretty close to national average. It's about a two and a half percent average savings rate. And if that's the case and you earn a 5% rate of return and you save the five grand a year and you increase it by 4%, then you're going to end up at 65 with, you know, somewhere between a half a million dollars and $600,000. If you're living off $200,000 today and we fast forward to 65 and you've got less than $600,000, you could do the math, pull 4% off that number. You know, you're you're still less than $50,000 a year of cash flow post-retirement. So in other words, retirement's not happening. The temptation is to say, okay, well, what if we got a higher rate of return than just 5%? What if that that $5,000 a year that's saved as it grows, grows at six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12%. Sometimes you hear that out there in, in the media, uh, as impossible as that may be, even a 12% rate of return is going to give you less than $2 million of accumulated wealth, uh, like far less the, than, than $2 million of accumulated wealth at 65. So it's not a it's not a change of rate of return that's going to save the day here. And we don't control that anyway. So the good news is that the lever you can pull that is 100% within your control is to simply constrain the way money is spent over time. To our example of uh, exercise and you know counting calories and living on a diet is so hard for people to do. It's so hard because it's so counter to human nature. We can do something similar here that doesn't require that kind of pain from a lifestyle standpoint. In our example here, if you'll follow our numbers, we're still going to only save $5,000 today uh, for our $200,000 a year income household. As that income increases at 4%, instead of having the cost of living, which is you know everything that's not saved, in other words, $195,000. Instead of having that increase at 4%, we're going to assume that we use this system we've been describing where we pay ourselves first and we control how much is spent over time so that the rate of increase in savings is constrained to only go up at 3% a year instead of 4% a year. It's the only difference here that we're going to kind of describe in the outcome. So still just going to get a 5% rate of return on money as it's invested. Income is going to go up at 4%. The cost of living, what we're spending is only going to be increasing at 3%, but it's still increasing every year. We don't have to give up anything this year. Like our lifestyle today is the same. That subtle difference to to constrain spending and therefore to unlock increases in savings over time causes the end result. Instead of being around a half a million bucks, it's like almost three and a half million dollars, $3.3 million 
and change. We took the same amount of risk. We lived the same lifestyle today. We still grew that lifestyle. We just slightly constrained the expenses uh, in a way that feels effortless, feels like I'm not missing anything over time. So it's just a, it's a, almost hard to believe how big of an impact that one subtle little 1% change in cash flow management can have. But that's what's possible if we've got the right kind of automated structure in place. And that's not looking at any other improvements or inefficiencies that might be present in the cash flow right now. I mean, I think almost everybody nowadays can look at their credit card statements, their bank statements and go, yeah, there's probably some some excess here that's just kind of waste. Like I can't put my finger on where the money is going, but yeah, I, I can't seem to be able to save more. But if you look at those credit card statements, you find all kinds of additional improvements beyond what Neil was just talking about. So this this really does put people in the driver's seat where they be, get to become like the, the chief financial officer of their own cash flows. How does somebody implement this? How do they how do they monitor it? How do they track it? How do they know if they're if they're really on a good track or not? Yeah. So uh, you know the the thing that we sometimes dwell on here, but I think is a mistake to do so, is to focus first on budgeting. Like let's figure out exactly what our lifestyle is, uh, you know, and, and really zero in on that on a granular basis before we proceed. And in my experience, that's a mistake. Generally speaking, you know what you spend right now because you're spending all of it. You know, we just, whether it's comfortable to admit that or not, all of us do it. You know, what goes in and isn't saved, 100% of that is spent. And so the easy way to go about implementing this really is like shockingly simple as well, is just take a savings account, take an existing savings account, or, you know, work with a financial professional to, you know, open up a savings vehicle or like a brokerage account, a cash management account. It really doesn't have to be anything special. The key is just that it's there, it's structured the right way, and it's monitored. So all I'm going to do is make this one subtle change. I'm going to take that savings vehicle. We would often label this as a wealth building account because that's really what it's for, is to enable you to build wealth over time. And the first change I'm going to make is I'm going to shift through you know, HR at work. I'm going to shift my direct deposit from my checking account to that wealth building account. And we'll do that for you know everybody's paychecks, for any other money, inflows, rental income, anything else you have going on that represents income, inflows into your world. I want 100% of that to go to that wealth building account. And then whatever had been going in previously, or whatever we had been spending, whatever a credit card statement was, however you're kind of managing your monthly cash flow today, that's the amount I want to start with uh, as that dedicated outflow from the wealth building account to the checking account uh, on a monthly basis. And Jim, the thing I really want to point out here, because it's such a common, it's a common concern when we introduce this to people that is so easily alleviated. The concern is you, you start to think to yourself, well, I've got so much set up already around the way I spend money. You know, everything from Amazon Prime to the way, you know, Netflix is drafted to utility bills, all of that set up. In many cases, we have dozens and dozens of drafts occurring every single day. It's complicated. And not a single one of those cash flow line items has to change at all because the checking account, that mechanism stays entirely intact. We're just changing the source of funding for it. So that's that's the easiest place to get started. And then ultimately, once we have that set up, we start to feel comfortable with it. Maybe you let a few weeks, a few months go by. The world hasn't ended in terms of your cash flow. Now we can do the work of going back and identifying what wealth building activity can we fund from that wealth building account? Like how much is available there from a cash flow uh, perspective, or how much is even built up from a, just a capital, a surplus perspective that we can start to automatically shift 
and allocate from that wealth building account to assets that are going to yield more. They're going to have a higher and better use from a money standpoint, like, for example, your investment accounts. So start small, just open up the WBA, shift the paycheck into the WBA, uh, set up those dedicated outflows for lifestyle. And, and I just let's just sit back and watch it work and get comfortable with it. What I find is a month or two goes by and clients realize this is really easy. They start to see results. And that just drives us to even think more, uh, I think, productively, right, about how to manage this and how to really get that snowball going to save more and more money. And what about just proactive monitoring and ongoing feedback? Because I, I think a lot of folks want to know how are they doing? Like, where's the evidence that this is working? Like, it feels good, but where's the proof? Like, what what are tools that are available to, to track that? It is it's so important that it's tracked over time. It's like uh, anything else, if it isn't measured, uh, you know, it doesn't really exist. We don't take advantage of it. So you, you know, you're going to save automatically, but you're not going to know exactly how much uh, more you're saving. If you're not checking in and staying on top of those numbers over time, uh, it's to your benefit to do that. And so you can do it manually. It's hard. Uh, there is some work involved, uh, especially if you've never done it before. You know, we we use a, a tracking mechanism through the living balance sheet. Uh, it's something that's available in the the client app that Jim mentioned earlier, where you can see just at a glance as you've got your wealth building account connected to the system, you got your checking account connected, you have your other uh, long-term wealth building, you know, destinations being monitored there. You can easily at a glance see exactly how much has gone into the wealth building account in a given time period, what's flowed out to fund your lifestyle, you know, what's what remains, what's left over that is sort of free cash flow that's unallocated that could be dedicated to really building some capital on your balance sheet over time. But it's so critical that you use something to track that over time, or you're just not going to be able to really take full advantage of what's possible. Yeah, because I, I think you you mentioned a good good point there. It's it's super critical to track this because if, if you aren't measuring it, you don't really know what kind of progress you're making. It, it's also easy, like I mentioned earlier, to be the CFO of your own finances. I mean, when you review this stuff, whether it's you know quarterly or semi-annual, whatever it is, you know, I, I always recommend that folks pick a time during the year. And maybe it's maybe it's once a year where they look back to see, did my income go up over the course of the last 12 months? And if it did, do I want to give myself a pay raise of what's going to that spending account, that checking account? And and if it is, an easy trick is to just keep it as a percentage. And you know, like Neil mentioned earlier, if your pay went up by 4%, uh, that doesn't mean you have to give yourself a spending increase by 4%. Just making it 3% or a 1% difference could literally be a multi-million dollar difference of wealth building potential over somebody's lifetime. So it, it's incredibly powerful. And like you mentioned, anybody could track this stuff in a spreadsheet, but it could be hard. <laughs> There's a lot of moving pieces. Yeah. I think you're better off just having a, a system that's already built. It's plug and play that allows you to do this with ease. So Neil, any any other um, final points to, to to wrap this up? Yeah. I mean, I would just say, as you think about the impact of what we're talking about and what this is really all about, you know, the example I often use is something like a Netflix, these subscription services that we all have in our lives and you know, hope, hopefully we all enjoy, but we enjoy them without really full awareness of the, the cost and the increasing cost over time. And what happens with these types of subscriptions is that uh, they're automatic and systematic. So they just sort of occur behind the scenes. We don't notice that they're happening. Uh, and they increase again imperceptibly. So we're funding those types of lifestyle costs by default already in our world, and they work incredibly well. It's the reason those types of companies are among the most successful in the world. 
all we're really talking about today is engineering the same type of mechanism for yourself, for your future, uh, to have that same type of reliable mechanism to deliver wealth to you over time. So rather than spending by default, we want to save by default. We want to treat your savings dollars with at least the same level of regard that you treat you know, dollars going to Netflix or Disney Plus. And let's let that be the default. We save by default and the spending decision is one that is made manually as opposed to automated the way most of us do it right now. So save by default, spend by decision. That's a huge point. And before I hand it back over to Patrice to, to wrap the show up, you know, it, when you were saying that, it made me think about what works really well with 401k plans. Like that, that's probably one of the only automated systems that most Americans have that that automatically helps them save more by default. Uh, an easy example would be, and I'm not talking about like automatically increasing your contribution rates. What I'm saying is that if, if somebody's making, like you mentioned, $200,000 a year and they're putting, let's say, 10% into their 401k plan, uh, that's $20,000 a year. But if they get a pay raise, now they're making $300,000, 10% of $300,000 would be $30,000. So they, they by default save more money. Uh, so that's great for 401ks, but think about all the other places you need to be putting money outside of retirement-only accounts. Uh, this mechanism that you'll walk us through today could be an easy solution to to help you save by default with with other dollars in your balance sheet. So Neil, thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come on the show today. And uh, Patrice, let me turn it back over to you. Well, I've got to tell you, gentlemen, cash flow has never been so fascinating. Thank you very much for this discussion. <laughs> and Jim, how can listeners reach you? A couple ways to reach us. Uh, number one, quick reminder to, to watch that video. Probably make more sense now that you watch it uh, after you went through um, you know, what Neil talked about today. And you can reach us you know, right on our website, uh, www.mcgovernwealth.com. You can email us, info at mcgovernwealth.com. Or I would encourage you to take the assessment, take the tool that we put in the show notes and uh, just get an overall sense of your own financial health. And if you see some things in there that you like a little bit of feedback on, you can contact us directly through that form. And listeners, as Jim just said, remember to check out the show notes for those important links he mentioned at the beginning of the podcast and just again now. Also, follow this podcast, Maximizing Outcomes, to know when the latest episode is ready for you and share with others. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. Guardian, New York, New York. 
PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA Insurance License Number 0F67329 AR Insurance License Number 7119103 California Insurance License Number 0F67329 Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119103 Compliance number 2023-162908 expires October of 2025.